Hey, it's Jim Paff again, and this is the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people are evil because they want to run your lives. We promote culture and government that values voluntary decisions left up to you. This is a way to promote justice and kindness that thinks about the needs of others before ourselves. Go to our website, politicsisntnice.com, and join our email list. The button's right there at the top right, politicsisntnice.com. You know, I'm uh, really blessed to have so many friends that uh, get together with me on this podcast, and today we're going to talk to Peter Schweitzer. Peter has done so much wonderful work through the Government Accountability Institute and his books, exposing corruption in government and really showing the dark underbelly of much of what takes place in in our government and sometimes in our society. Peter Schweitzer has always epitomized that attitude. He's a brilliant man who thinks through things, has learned how to investigate what's really taking place behind the veneer that these people who call themselves our leaders put up to shield you from what's really going on. We are in an age in this country where that is a major problem. And the Government Accountability Institute and Peter Schweitzer are doing brilliant work to make sure that uh, that is exposed for what it really is. So with that, I'm going to turn it over here and want to talk to my friend Peter Schweitzer. Hey, uh, well, really glad to have my friend Peter Schweitzer here. You guys have uh, heard of him, many books. that Clinton Cash made a big splash in 2016. He's written books like Extortion which uh, and uh, Throw Them All Out, which really exposed a lot of what's going on in Congress, uh, led to some legislation, the Stock Act, which uh, requires now congressmen to report what how their stock purchases of course we'll we'll talk a little bit about it probably but uh another actually because of that it revealed something that's been happening this year that is very concerning but recently he wrote secret empires and uh peter thanks for coming by and uh spending some time with me friend always good to be with you my friend thanks for inviting me yeah thanks hey uh by the way, do your thumbs, are they kind of getting a little weary of constantly having to retweet uh, everyone's praise for Secret Empires? I just saw it just before <laughs> we got on to the record today. <laughs> yeah, you know, authors are terrible about that, right? They, they, they crave, the, crave the praise. And, uh, you know, there's an old saying that, that um, uh, you know, we're kind of glad that we don't actually know how many people actually read the book. Um, because there's probably people that praise the book or like the book that haven't read it. And that's okay. We're just thankful that people are paying in, uh, attention. And, you know, we like to think that, that uh, at the Government Accountability Institute, uh, the organization I had, that the research we do is uh, very in-depth so that what we report or what we investigate has staying power. And, uh, you know, I think the evidence is it does because people care deeply about these things. And, and once it starts to resonate how deeply embedded it is, um, people want to know more. I, I got to tell you, there's I haven't been able to verify the authenticity, but there's that video going around with this one lady who um, I think they're calling it a pandemic, and this lady is saying that uh, Fauci, uh, Dr. Fauci, took away a 
and uh, an opportunity for her to uh, get a um, uh, patent on something because he wanted to get it himself and you know saying that he's really the center of all evil i haven't been able to verify the veracity of the video yet but but what it does it does expose one thing that's there uh, there is legislation that was passed in 1995 that allows a lot of these doctors that are connected with the NIH, the National Institutes of Health and CDC and, and universities, and it really might be causing some major problems in our reliance on the science because the science has such a corrupt component of some of these uh, government, government uh, uh, hired researchers where they're making all this extra money, by the way, which congressmen couldn't even do. As, mu as bad as corruption is in Congress, I mean, this is a, a little bit worse. And this is kind of clouding some of this stuff. These are the sorts of things that Government Accountability Institute exposes. But this, this might have some real effects on what's going on with this pandemic, even if I don't know about this lady's claims. But this general problem uh, really seems to be exposed as we go through this. Yeah, I mean, one of the first things I, I learned, Jim, uh, in college economics was incentives matter. Um, and uh, I think a lot of times, uh, particularly people that are, you know, more on the political left, they have this notion that in the private sector, it's everybody focused on themselves. But in the public sector, uh, you know, it's all this benevolence. Um, and the reality is, I believe that, that generally human beings are human beings. Um, there obviously are variations and, and uh, differences, but profoundly, ultimately, if you are in the government bureaucracy, you respond to a certain set of incentives. And that's why you spend a lot of time uh, in Washington, D.C., in positions of power, and you've seen it. That's why you get government agencies that are always trying to figure out new ways to gather larger budgets. Uh, to be able to hire more people, which will mean a bigger salary and more power. So these incentives really matter. And I think the, the notion that, well, let's just let the, the doctors and the medical professionals talk and listen to them, they're human beings like we are. And in fact, there's a lot of debate within medical circles. There is no consensus. And you add on top of that the fact that a lot of people that are government researchers, they have patents. And depending on what kind of drug we end up realizing is going to help deal with COVID-19, the patent holders there could stand to make a lot of money. Um, again, like you said, we don't know. We don't know about these claims. We don't know about all the details. But that ought to be a factor. That ought to be something that we're aware of uh, and not be shocked you know, as in the movie Casablanca, shocked that there's gambling going on. Um, because this is, this is the way human institutions work, and it's one of the reasons that I am a big advocate of limited government. Um, power corrupts. It doesn't matter if you're wearing a lab coat or whether you're wearing a lawyer's outfit. Yeah, it's so true. And in fact, one of the things that I've, I've talked about, as inefficient as this might be, the reality is the decisions that need to be made around these, all that's going on with COVID right now or any similar emergency have to be made by the politicians because those are the people we elect. And Correct. we take the advice of medical people. I mean, they've got good information. I have some serious doubts about Anthony Fauci in a general way, but I do know he's an expert in this. I know mm -hmm. he's got something to offer that we can listen to. So I, you know, I don't, I don't want to just shut down everything that he says. But it, his is not the final decision here. It's the elected yeah. officials, even if it's elected officials we don't like, even if it's 
Governor Whitmer, uh, Gretchen Whitmer up in Michigan, who's really an authoritarian nut job, in my opinion. But but she'll have to pay for that in the next election. She that that will be in the decision process. And that's a much safer uh, way to think through it. Even with the problems that people are having in Michigan, it's a much safer way to deal with this in a free society than it is to have authoritarian medical people where there is real disagreement. It amazes me, Peter, watching some of these doctors that are so frustrated with these shutdown orders that they're putting up YouTube videos. They're calling other medical professionals out. Of course, they're being bludgeoned by the media because you're saying people need to go out and be free and do what they're, they're doing. And don't you know that that's cruel and inhuman? Well, no, these are scientists just like the rest of them. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, look, I, I agree with you that um, these decisions need to be made by elected officials and, it's remarkable to me um, how quickly uh, a lot of people are just prepared to give credence to, to something that somebody who runs a government institution like the National Institutes of Health are prepared to do. And I'm not, I'm not picking on Fauci per se, but it's just this notion of fallibility. You can go on the internet and you can find a, a video interview of yeah. Dr. Fauci with the Today Show at the end of January saying what? that COVID-19 is no big deal, the flu is a much more serious problem. Then you can right. find an interview that was done with Forbes magazine, I think it's on March 9th. Think about this, March 9th, a week later, we are being, beginning the shutdown, but on March 9th, Anthony Fauci is saying, what? If you're young and in good health, go on a cruise. I mean, and, and my point is not to say that, that Fauci's a bad guy or he's dumb. He's not. He's clearly very smart. But my point is the notion that we're just going to trust these guys, they know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They're trying to figure out what the problem is. And you're quite right. The only level of accountability you're going to have is when elected officials make these decisions. And by the way, I think the courts should have a role to play in the sense that you know, we have this thing called the First Amendment that says you have the, what is it, the right to free assembly. Um, if they're going to shut down protests, I think the courts probably have a say here as well, um, you know, whether a governor or a mayor is, is abridging constitutional rights. So this is the process. I think if you look at um, what's been done at the federal level, and of course, the federal government has limited powers. Most of the power in dealing with a pandemic is at the state level. Um, you know, Trump and Fauci would probably say uh, that they're generally on the same, uh, at the same place, that, that Trump has essentially done what Fauci has asked, and Fauci has attested to that. So um, it, it's going to be interesting six months from now, Jim, looking forward, um, when we do a reassessment to see how often, how bad the government bureaucracies were in actually assessing the nature of the threat that we're going through right now. Well, and I know I uh, pointed to your uh, tweet uh, of someone praising your book earlier, but I happened to notice that while I was tweeting. That's how I happened to notice it. Just before. <laughs> uh, the AP uh, had just reported prior to this that uh, the Trump administration had shelved the 17-page CDC report on how to open the country. And, you know, you can just and, – and, and by the way, it said while the – while the uh, pandemic is still raging, this was in the AP right. article. Okay, so my my reply to that was, "quote still raging" unquote is provocative and intended for effect. One, two. So what? 
we're saying Trump is bound to the CDC. What about this pesky little constitution thingy? You know, I mean, this is, yeah. and by the way, not, not that, again, not that we, you don't listen to anything the CDC says. By the way, I think the whole, my personal opinion is that the whole uh, government oriented CDC, NIH, all these organizations, to be candid, we don't even need to be doing this in the federal government, that kind of stuff. There's plenty of incentive and we can give plenty of encouragement for this to be done on a private basis, just like, uh, and in fact, the FDA as well too, I think needs to be gotten rid of. I mean, we've got underwriters laboratories that deals with all of these products that are manufactured here and there. And, and everyone submits it for a price to them as a private company to run through the process of seeing how safe they are. I mean, we can do a lot of this in the private sector. We don't need the government thing. But again, it's not like there aren't experts over there. It's not like there aren't things to listen to. But for this, these media authoritarians, in a way, to really suggest an authoritarian process where Donald Trump needs to be doing what the CDC says, and if he doesn't, he's absolutely wrong. No, we elected him for good or for bad. Whatever you want, your analysis is, we elected him. He's the guy who's got to make the decision. And, and th this is a major, major problem in our culture, frankly, and in our political process that really needs to be constantly examined and reevaluated. I agree. I mean, I think there is, um, in, in a sense, and people will criticize me for this, but I think in a sense, among a lot of people, there's what I call the cult of expertise. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean that experts aren't good and they aren't important. They absolutely are. Uh, but oftentimes we're looking for experts to make decisions uh, that are not related to, you know, ultimately what their profession is. And the example I give all the time is if you go to uh, a, a government bureaucrat who's the head of a health agency and you say, we have to decide the risks uh, of reopening after a pandemic. Their default position is always going to be don't reopen. Mm -hmm. Just if you're in a corporate setting and you've got to make a decision about a business deal, um, the, the corporate lawyer that works for you is always going to default to don't do the deal because that's the way to avoid any problem happening. So you, you, can't, uh, you can't operate that way. I think the other problem you have at the federal government level, particularly with the CDC, we did a, a video podcast on this, uh, something I do called Drill Down. Um, and what you look at the CDC, it's very, very interesting, Jim, to look at the mission creep uh, that has taken place with the CDC. The CDC was originally organized in 1946 as the, as the Communicable Diseases Center. So it was designed to look precisely at these kinds of diseases. Um, it has morphed into this large bureaucracy where in the current budget, you know how much, what percentage of their budget actually goes to looking at things like COVID-19, things that can turn into a pandemic? About 10% of their budget. The rest of their budget reflects all these sorts of things that have nothing to do with the communicable diseases. There are now the Centers for Disease Control, but they're looking at all sorts of things that have nothing to do with diseases. They're looking at issues related to domestic abuse, bad playground equipment, motorcycle helmets, uh, uh, issues related to uh, gun crimes. Um, those are all things that you know, ought to be looked at 
but not by the Centers for Disease Control. There were already other government agencies looking at those things. So it's a classic example of them feathering their nests, expanding themselves, and moving away from the core mission. And, and it's the reason why the CDC um, really completely failed in the one thing that they were originally supposed to do, which is deal with these kinds of pandemics, know what's happening early, and know what the extent of the problem is. Uh, the yeah. other thing I'd say is you're exactly right, Jim. I think that a lot of the media reporting has been uh, terrible. Um, my favorite was the headline. I think it was in the Times the other, other day. The headline was, you know, corona, death, uh, 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 corona deaths continue to accumulate. Well, of course they do. It's a cumulative number. I mean, if you have one more death the next day, sadly, you're going to have more deaths. It doesn't really inform you as to what the trend lines are and what the position is. And the other thing is the goalposts have shifted. I mean, the original reason for the shutdown was the concern that we were going to overwhelm the healthcare system, that we were not going to have enough hospital beds. Remember the whole concern about ventilators, that we're not going to have enough of these items and the healthcare system was going to be overwhelmed and we were going to have people dying in the streets. A horrific scenario. Well, that, that, we never even got remotely to that point. But now we're at a point where we flatten the curve, as they asked us to do. And yet you still have people saying, well, now the goal is no longer making sure the healthcare system is making sure we have completely eradicated the virus. And that is a, a, a unrealistic and I think ridiculous uh, proposition because the costs of the shutdown in terms of suicides, domestic abuse, depression, uh, substance abuse um, continues to mount and I think it's going to have a lot more dramatic effect on human life in the United States than, than the sad continued fatalities from COVID-19. Yeah, as is the economic disaster that has befallen us. More than 30 million people out of work, small businesses closing like crazy. <clears throat> I was uh, talking to someone else uh, earlier this week on a podcast I was putting together, uh, I live here in the small town of Woodland Park, Colorado. All the small businesses were closed. It's a small town, 8,000 people, <clears throat> but Walmart was open in two of the big grocery stores, but all the small businesses are shut down. I think some of them may or may not survive. Some of them yeah. were already teetering just a little bit, but um, still I, the, the devastation that is going to be wreaked upon the one job creating sector in this country, which is small businesses. Large businesses are not our job creators. They create jobs and, and certainly that is a benefit, but the real job creation happens in small businesses, happens in entrepreneurial effort. And we have harmed much of entrepreneurial small business effort through doing what we did and changing the goalposts makes it worse. By the way, I, you know, uh, Illinois is one of the, another one of the worst examples of states and, there's, and what they're doing to shut things down. When you see Governor Pritzker just recently said, okay, churches can get together, but no more than 50 people, you know, another constitutional issue. But they've, they've got that whole state clamped down too. The devastation that's wreaked is crazy, which by the way, brings me to this $2.3 trillion fiasco that happened uh, in DC recently. And, and another trillions are being proposed to to put into a situation where it really can't help anything and what you see happened with this 2.3 trillion dollar bill that my former boss thomas massey uh demanded a vote for 
And I think he was right to do that. And by the way, he's winning that debate in the long run because he was, he was a pariah. And now, you know, people are applauding him rightly, but that thing only gave that entire bill, no more than half a billion dollars of 2.3 trillion was going to individuals or small businesses right in that tranche where did everything else go to big yeah. businesses well yeah. what what's the benefit there what's the result well the result is the biz, the big businesses lose small business competition it gives them more market share and yeah. sometimes that's intended by the lobbyists who are looking for it some of those lobbyists of big businesses were just trying to help them survive or whatever but for the most part the big businesses have the heft of lobbying lobbying in Washington DC and they get the benefit they got the benefit with tarp with the uh, the bailout from the financial crisis, we were the FDIC was closing small banks and medium sized banks all over the country, while all the big banks stayed in, uh, except for rare exceptions, stayed in 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 existence and got massive amounts of money. So this is a real problem of corruption that continues in Washington D.C. Well. Absolutely, I I uh, uh, saw somebody uh, pay, post up on social media. You know, they were they were opposed to ending the lockdown and they said, you know, this is about the rich um, wanting to to, you know, the rich and the powerful corporations pushing for a reopening. Um, I think it's actually the opposite um, to your point. Um, if think about it this way, think about the large um, uh, companies that do hardware, uh, Lowe's or Home Depot. And they are competing against these small or medium-sized, you know, local hardware stores. If you have an extended lockdown, who wins in that situation? Right. Certainly not the medium operator. They're going to go out of business because they can't access capital. They're going to see their workforce end up going somewhere else. The people who can hang out in a long-term lockdown are the large operators. They're Lowe's. They're Home Depot. They can access capital. They've got cash reserves. Uh, they can preserve their supply chains. So the point is, the longer the lockdown occurs, the more consolidation you're going to have in corporate America. You're going to have middle-sized operators and small operators go out of business, and that's going to benefit the large corporations. Um, and that's something that surprises me. If you look at the lockdown from a political standpoint, this is something that I think the left has missed in all of this. Uh, the left who seems, you know, determined to say we need to extend the lockdown for a long period of time. What they don't realize is that is playing absolutely into the hands of large corporations uh, because the large corporations can sustain themselves. They can access capital markets. They'll be just fine if the lockdown goes five months. The, the small mom and pop hardware store, they're gone. They're out of business. Yeah, it's it it's going to radically transform what's going on. May, hopefully, if we get this U, small U, or narrow U or V-shaped uh, recovery, you might see some good small business effort come back. But when you're purposefully shutting these people down, you're putting that sector of our economy at risk. And to be candid, even the big businesses that might have in a very cruel way sought to uh, get advantages that small businesses can't get if they did that on purpose, it actually could hurt them too in the long run as well yeah. in ways yeah. that they may not see immediately and, and will take a long time to weave through the system if we don't get the kind of recovery that we want. What, what do you think? Do we, get a, do we get a recovery? I know you're not the financial genius, <laughs> you do research, but, but what's your sense of how that might be interacting? 
Well, I've always subscribed to the view that that a lot of economics relates to psychology and where uh, people are feeling. Are they feeling optimistic? Are they feeling like taking risks, starting their own business or making an investment or buying a larger house? A lot of it comes down to the psychology. And I think the longer the shutdown uh, goes on, uh, the more people are going to become risk averse. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, I think it's probably going to be a U-shaped recovery, but I'm certainly not an economist. Don't pretend to be. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, what, what Keynes called the animal spirits uh, and this notion that people have of, of this ambition to drive, to build a business, to have a larger home. Uh, you need to sustain that because that is what employs people. And if you don't have that kind of dynamism uh, in the economy, uh, people are going to suffer. I think a lot of it also has to do with um, how uh, our public leadership talks about where we are. Are they optimistic? Um, are they talking about how, you know, we're getting over this virus, we're going to get over it strong, and we're going to work hard? Or is it going to be sort of more doom and gloom, uh, where there's going to be more viruses down the corner? And a lot of that, of course, plays into the 2020 election. You're already seeing political ads being run by both sides. Uh, that are trying to paint this portrait. But I, I think most Americans tend to be optimists. Uh, and my hope is um, that the lockdown has not gone on long enough to where that optimism has been worn down. So I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, Jim. What about you? Well, you know, my opinion, I see that uh, there are enough states opening up right now. Of course, on the, on the farthest end, we see a Christy Nome who really never shut down the state. Uh, did what I believe from my liberty-minded perspective was the right thing to do. Inform people, give them all the best information, encourage them to take certain actions on their own, leave it to their desires and, and their uh, making the best uh, choice for themselves. And it's played out pretty well there. I mean, people predicted she'd have 10,000 people in hospitals or something and be overwhelmed. It never happened. All these numbers have been wrong, by the way. Yeah. Every yeah. one of them from the very beginning. And, uh, and, and we never from the outset, and not that this was a concept that didn't exist. We never talked about herd immunity from the very beginning. And again, you know, it's not like, yeah, come on guys, go out and get yourself exposed to all this stuff so you can right. get sick. But, but the reality is that when these, when these diseases work through the population, you definitely stop them. And these coronaviruses, I don't know what's going to be with this one, but these coronaviruses like SARS and some others, they really did die out once that herd immunity developed. Yeah. Maybe this one won't do that. I don't know. But, um, but that, you know, we never talked about that. That could have given a lot more hope to people on the front end. But when you go from Christy Nome on the most liberty-minded end, and by the way, she was not a very good vote in Congress at all from a liberty perspective. I was there and I didn't see it. But she's really impressed me with what she's doing here. And, and then some of these other states, like my state of Colorado, I mean, I, I think Jared Polis has done better than others. I have criticisms, but it hasn't been as bad as some others. You see Ron DeSantis in your home state. As these state, and then Brian Kemp over in uh, Georgia and others, as you see these states start to open up, I think we might just have a, a good timing for rebuilding some hope. Because I really do believe you're gonna see maybe a little slight uptick here and there and the, and people will try to blow the reports out of the water. But I, I think it's gonna give people a lot of hope and it's gonna encourage them to move forward. I'm hopeful that that's the case. The other thing that I think I see, Peter, is in my opinion, 
there's a real chance of a political backlash in November that I don't think anyone knows much about right now. I've talked to a lot of people about it. I've thought about it myself. And these protests, I think, are kind of tips of the iceberg, very similar to the Tea Party movement back in uh, 2009 that swept in a new Congress. I think there's a chance that that swells and grows. And another comparison I make is with Hillary Clinton back in 2016, you know, she's telling coal miners right to their face, hey, I'm taking your jobs away. Good luck. <laughs> we'll give yeah. you some money. Hopefully you can switch. I think that that sentiment took her down one. It wasn't so much that Trump won, although I think he did some things to win, but it was also that she lost. I think there's a lot of that sentiment uh, starting to build. I, 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 I think you're right. And just to add to that, Jim, I think it, it um, the issue related to, you know, the quarantine and the lockdown also, you know, has, has it's really emerged that, you know, what I like to call the permanent political class really does feel like there's a different set of rules uh, for themselves. So you have, you know, all these people basically saying you need to stay at home, you need to give up seeing your grandkids, you need to stay away from events. But then it emerges that, you know, Barack Obama goes golfing. While Washington, D.C. is shut down, Barack Obama goes golfing. The, the governor of, uh, of Illinois' wife takes the private jet and flies down to Florida. Uh, the, um, Dr. Ferguson, the, uh, the British uh, uh, government mm -hmm. uh, official who did the study and was a strong advocate, uh, reported in the Telegraph that he uh, had a girlfriend, um, a married girlfriend, and they were running off and meeting in another location, which is, of course, also violating quarantine. That really angers people. Um, I think most Americans are very, very uh, uh, happy and content. Um, if they feel like it's going to help the country and help their communities, they're willing to sacrifice. They're willing to give up their freedoms. They're willing to give up seeing the grandkids or you know, visiting their kids in, you know, that, are, that, that might be somewhere else. But when they tell, when, when you're told to stop doing those things, but the people in the previous, in the, in the elite that have access to the private jets, who have government power, who can go to a golf course that other people can't go to, that really ticks a lot of people off. And I think the potential backlash there uh, can be enormous, the sort of anti-establishment um, uh, anger that's out there. You know, uh, that's a good transition to something that I'm thinking about because I, through this podcast that I'm doing, I'm really wanting to, of course, we're called against nice. Uh, you know, I, I make the claim that nice people are more times than not the most mean and evil people that exist. They're, <laughs> they're the folks that, and as I say repeatedly, I apologize for all my podcast listeners. I like to repeat this for my guests so they can feed off of it. But, you know, they're the people that, that have that mean people suck bumper sticker on their cars, you know, yeah. uh, I, and I look at these protests and I really do want to encourage these people. Of course, I'm not against them brandishing guns, but, you know, think about that a little bit. You know, there's some I, edges I on this to be aware of. But I, I don't want to discourage the, that spirit at all because I think we don't need to be nice. But I, what I do find uh, something that we need to do is learn to be kind. Now, kindness really seeks the benefit of other people. Nobody, you, you know, I've talked about this many times and you've been, uh, we, we've run through this, but you know, no parent 
uh, is considered kind that wouldn't discipline their children and no child that's being disciplined thinks that their parents being very nice. And, but, but that attitude, that approach to things is what we need to get to. It's a very firm, courageous, focused thing. But, uh, but it also has the benefit of others. I think that's a lot of what you do in the books you have. Secret Empires is a great example of this because it's, it's, it's uh, nonpartisan and, and bipartisan in its criticisms and uh, focuses on an aspect of politics that, we, that needs to be exposed so that we have a chance to do something a little bit better in the future, to encourage it, and maybe even to get voters to finally say, we've had enough of this. Stop it. You know, what, what, do, you think, what, what do you think is happening here uh, publicly? You, you, and, and talk about what you're trying to do as well, too, in this. But how can we encourage people to really take these firm, courageous stands? Not just protesting, but going to the freaking poll and saying, no more. Right. No, I think that's a great question. One of the challenges we face uh, right now is, Jim, Jim, is that um, some people have become so cynical that, um, you know, they see that things are exposed. They see the corrupt acts take place. Some of them are, frankly, legal. Some of them are not. Uh, but they're frustrated because they don't feel like there's any sense of justice. So they get discouraged and they just kind of give up and they say they're all corrupt and, and I'm sort of giving up on the process. And my response yeah always is you're doing exactly what corrupt officials want you to do. They want you to check out and they want the polls to be filled with people who don't care or are ignorant um, of these things. So, you know, I think what we have to do is we have to continue to expose corruption, abuse of power, cronyism, and then we have to hold into account. And as I always say, we have to be prepared to call it out on our own side. Um, it's not a Republican problem. It's not a Democrat problem. Um, it's, as I like to say, it's not a red problem or a blue, or a blue problem. It's a green problem. Um, and what that means is, you know, if your side is, is uh, doing something bad, you need to call them out. And so, you know, I've been, I'm, you know, conservative and I don't make any uh, argument about that, but I call out Republicans all the time. I'm not particularly liked by a lot of the politi political leadership on the Republican side in Washington, D.C., and you've got a recent Hey, case. by the way, I'm not very liked by Republican leadership. <laughs> exactly. <Just> FYI. Exactly. <laughs> <You know that. laughs> exactly. And, um, and, you know, you carry that as a badge, as you should. Um, but, you know, my point is, you know, you've got Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina. There's been a lot of information that's come out about stock trades that he made. Now it's come out that I think his brother-in-law, who is a Trump appointee, uh, made trades on the same day, dumping a bunch of stock. It's a huge amount of money. Um, you know, it needs to be investigated, but it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. And, and, you know, for people that are conservatives to say, well, you know, Burr, you know, he's okay. He tends to vote with us at least most of the time. So I'm going to give him a pass. Is exactly the wrong approach you need to take. We need to have a zero tolerance policy. Uh, and as I always say, you know, no political figure is irreplaceable. Um, we believe in our country that we are a country governed by laws, not by men. Uh, and for every, you know, good conservative or good liberal out there that a person happens to like, there's another person that can take their place and carry the mantle for them. What we need to say is zero tolerance for corruption. And I think we need to make clear 
that the way you deal with corruption, you can, there are things you can do in the legal code, you can create laws, you can change ethical rules, but it's kind of like water rolling downhill. They're always going to find a way around it or, or a creative way to get around it. The key thing uh, that I think we have to do ultimately is have the zero tolerance policy out and we have to be advocates of limited governments because what gives these public officials the ability to enrich themselves and their families and to abuse power is the fact that they have a lot of power. And if you limit the power they have, you limit the opportunity they have to be, uh, you know, corrupt. As, as there's an old, uh, I think, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson quote, Reagan used it, you know, to the extent that government can do something for you, it can do something to you. And I would add to that, to that same extent, they can do something for themselves. So if you want to give, you know, elected officials more power, you want to give them greater control of the healthcare system, you want to give them greater control over the economy, guess what? They're going to be more corrupt and more rich because they have the opportunity to exploit that power. In fact, you, you and I talked a lot as you were uh, putting together this uh, Throw Them All Out book. I know, you know, that was a huge aspect of it. And by the way, but first of all, no, Senator Richard Byrd doesn't usually vote for us. That's, I'm, it's, it's nice of you to be gracious about that, but that ain't the case. He's, he's one of the worst. Kelly Leffler, I mean, this is the thing that's getting, Senator Kelly Leffler, this is the thing that's getting really bad because it was just um, revealed or someone reported on the fact that her husband who owns the company that controls the New York stock exchange. Uh, he's the CEO of that, that, that uh, umbrella organization. Well, she was working there, got a $9 million or at least as best we can tell $9 million uh, exit uh, cash as she was going, as she took the, uh, the uh, nomination to, to replace Isaacson for Senator in Georgia. And, you know, what's interesting about that, that a lot of people don't know, because she's made the case, Hey, listen, I took a pay cut because I want to serve the people. And, and, and by the way, there might be some of that in there, but let's be honest about this. It right. does not hurt the New York stock exchange to give her this money because she is an advocate for them internally. Of course. Absolutely. And, it, it, and, and, and it's not an illegal exchange. I'm not saying that at all. Right. But right. what it does is it helps people understand what the financial nexus is to a lot of this. That's an investment for them. It doesn't hurt them at all to Absolutely. give that money to her. And even and, if she didn't do it in an actual corruption, that kind of stuff can be done in a current manner. I mean, look at Eric Kanner coming out of of uh, being majority leader when Republicans had the house and, and he's been making multi millions of dollars ever since he got out of there. You think he has no influence coming back. This exchange is common, far yeah. too common. And it's a corrupting influence on what's happening in Congress. And I don't know how we more effectively reveal when these things are going on, but we do have to talk about the fact that they have a very real effect on what takes place in the halls of Congress. Oh, absolutely. No question about it. And I think in, in Senator Loeffler's case, I mean, let's be clear. Um, the concern here is not that the New York Stock Exchange parent company gives her $9 million and she goes and votes on free market issues. 
The concern <laughs> is that the New York Stock Exchange has given her $9 million, and when they want a regulatory fix or they want a certain benefit for their business or their stock exchange that could even mean less, let's say, less transparency, she's going to be more inclined to vote for it because of that $9 million that she would have been if she didn't get it. So I agree with you. Absolutely right. It's, it's, it's I think, one of the cardinal principles that's overlooked in American politics today, and that is um, big business loves big government. You know, the left wants to say that big government is the antithesis and is the counter to big business. It's not the case. Large corporations like large intrusive government because they feel like they can call the shots. Um, and this is the reason, frankly, I believe that companies give out uh, these kinds of bonuses or these kinds of paydays. And um, I think it's the sort of thing that is absolutely relevant when people are trying to evaluate what is of important to their, to their uh, elected candidates and, and what are their motivations? It's going to be very interesting to see in the Georgia primary um, how Republican voters deal with this. My sense is, at least looking at some of the polling, is they're not particularly happy with her right now. And I don't think this is going to, uh, this is going to benefit her, this recent bit of news. Yeah, and, and Doug Collins, who's really kind of been part of the GOP establishment in D.C., has also not been the worst guy in the world. He was fantastic when it came to the impeachment hearings and exposing what was going on. I, I think he's a generally good guy. I'm, I'm only acquainted with him. I know other congressmen better, but but I, I think he's going to provide a real uh, opposition to that. And and he's an excellent communicator. So I think even better than her, frankly, as far as I can tell so far. And that really may play out. It, it, it's going to be interesting to watch that because this is going to give us some indication of what's happening in these elections going into November in, in a way. She really does represent, Kelly Loeffler, represents a, a New York establishment uh, in the finance side of things that has been real problematic. But we've been kind of dinging on Republicans. You know, let's look at the Democrats because I think Republicans compromise to big government to help satisfy these interests that seem important to them or that are actually even up to a quid pro quo basis important to them. On the other side, the vast majority of money that comes into politics from Wall Street goes to Democrats and they are committed to big government. And there's a lot of uh, problems on that side of the issue as well. Yeah, that, it, it perplexes a lot of people who are not that familiar with politics when they realize that a lot of the money from the big Wall Street firms goes to Democrats and not to Republicans. And, you know, you don't know what the motives are. Sometimes the, these, you know, Wall Street titans or executives, they agree on, you know, certain social issues or whatever, but there's a fundamental process that takes place in Washington, D.C. And what I always tell people is, you've got to think of elected officials generally, there are obviously exceptions. Generally, you need to think of it in terms of a business model. That a lot of people, I think Chuck Schumer would be a classic example of this on the Democrat side, where they have established a business model. And what you need to do as a, as a politician is you need to create demand for your services. In other words, you have to give a reason for Wall Street Titans to give you money. They're not going to do it just because they like you. There's Chuck Schumer. He has a nice smile. He represents New York. You have to create a demand for your services. So... Part of that could be something I talked about in my extortion book, where 
you basically introduce legislation uh, that that is going to hurt Wall Street. Maybe you say we got to put it, you know, we've got to raise the capital gains uh, taxes, or we've got to apply, you know, short-term capital gains to these uh, Wall Street transactions. And you introduce this bill not because you necessarily want it to pass, but because it's a way of extorting money. Because what's going to happen, Jim? You were on Capitol Hill. You probably saw this in the corridors all the time. Absolutely. And if you introduce a bill like that, is the lobbyists from the Wall Street firms are going to show up and there's basically going to be this little dance. And what's going to happen at the end is the Wall Street firms are going to donate to that official who introduced that legislation and that legislation is going to go away. And the term that I've kind of applied to it, some people on the Hill use it, is their milker bills. They're bills that are designed to milk contributions from people. So this is the, the thing that a lot of people need to realize. There are important philosophical and ideological battles that take place on Capitol Hill. Some of the money flowing on Capitol Hill has to do with those battles. It can be issues related to, you know, pro-life and abortion. It can be issues related to tax policy. But a lot of the money that is, that is being thrown at Capitol Hill in these elections is primarily related, I believe, to this extortion model. Um, and that's the reason we get the kind of government that we get. So uh, switching gears as we get close to winding down, I want to get your thoughts now on what you see happening with all this uh, Attorney General Barr and, and uh, Attor uh, Attorney John Durham, uh, you know what I'm saying, John Durham, and their investigations. Because some of this stuff's starting to roll out now. I assume you guys are kind of tracking this, maybe working on work, putting work product together to let people know more what's going on, what's happening there. Yeah, um, I think it's great what Attorney General Barr has done. Um, if you look at his resume and his background, I mean, this guy is is has been pretty much a fixture of the Washington establishment for a long time. And what he's essentially done is walked into the bar that is Washington, D.C. Think of it as a bar, people sitting around having a drink. It's the same people that have been at the bar for a very long time. And Bill Barr has walked in and he's turning over the tables and he's, you know, he's throwing uh, uh, beer bottles on the ground. He's turning it over. And I think that's a very, very healthy thing. Um, you know, as I always say, I'm not an attorney. I don't know the legal ins and outs. There's a lot of corrupt acts in Washington that are legal, which is part of the problem. So I don't know precisely in terms of uh, indictments, but I think if there are things that rise to a criminal level. And certainly you've got instances of senior executives that were lying to Congress. Um, you look at, at, at or lied to the FBI for that matter. And then you look at the fact that they threw the book at General Flynn related to uh, lying to the FBI. I think what most people are looking for is some semblance of consistency. If you're going to throw somebody in jail because they lied to the FBI and another guy lies to the FBI, shouldn't he be charged too? That's what people are wondering. And what they're seeing is that there's yawning gap between how these laws are applied uh, to certain people. So my hope is that we are going to see some indictments. I think at a minimum, what we're going to see is some very, very granular and detailed and important information that's going to come out about how these investigations were carried out. We've already seen evidence that in the Flynn case, FBI investigators were basically, you know, in their notes declaring, well, are we going to ask these questions because we're trying to get to the truth 
are we going to try to trap this guy? Uh, people look at that, aside from the legal question, and say that's outrageous to conduct a, a criminal investigation. I think we're going to see more hints of that kind of attitude as it relates to the Russia investigation. And I think that's good news. I think transparency is good. I think exposing this stuff is good. Uh, and I think it's going to be a very exciting year ahead of us um, just based on that. You know, the FBI has not <clears throat> been the cleanest of organizations throughout all of its history, <clears throat> but there has been some honor in it from time to time. Is it possible, because William Barr goes back into the 80s and 90s involved yeah. with the Justice Department, is it possible that he decided to come back into this situation because of the extreme change that took place partly through the late Clinton administration, maybe a little bit through the Bush administration. I'm not a big fan of George W. Bush at all, but certainly through the Obama administration where some real corruption started coming in. Is it possible that he decided to take this on at the latter stages of his life when he could be relaxing a little bit more right now because he, he's just intransigently perturbed by where everything has gone? Did you get that sense? That's kind of what I think I see. It's, it's very possible. I mean, I, I don't know uh, uh, Bill Barr. I think I met him once 20 years ago, something like that. Um, but no, I look, if, if you look at this from the outside looking in, him becoming attorney general now for the second time, you know, it's not what you would consider like a great career move. Yeah. <laughs> from a personal standpoint, you look at the verbal abuse that he's putting up with, the personal attacks, uh, the scrutiny, the criticism. Uh, he had been attorney general under the first uh, George Bush. Uh, he was a very successful, very smart corporate lawyer, did very, very well. He doesn't need this. Uh, it clearly does seem to me that there's some sense of honor, some sense of we need to shake things up. Um, and what I always say is that, that um, you know, look, Americans love disruptors. It's one of the reasons we love people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. They were big disruptors. They, they disrupted the tech sector. Uh, we like people in, in arts and music that are disruptors. Well, Bill Barr is doing that in Washington, D.C., and it's just ironic to me that, that people who love disruptors in other parts of our society don't seem to like it in Washington, D.C., which is, I think, an area where we need more disruption rather than less because it's a lot easier to hide things and the kind of calcification and corruption that occurs in Washington, D.C. is far more damaging than the calcification that it could occur in corporate America. So I'm very excited and optimistic. I, I find uh, Barr to be quite fearless on this stuff, which I think is a remarkable trait and characteristic. Um, and I do really think that, that, you know, this was at the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about the lockdown. I think this notion of tier justice that certain rules apply to certain people is really the third rail of American politics. And I think it's one of the reasons that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. And I think it's one of the reasons that there's a lot of anger in this country. Even people that aren't terribly political, they don't follow candidates, they don't even listen to conservative talk radio. They get really, really angry when they feel like powerful people are walking away from criminal conduct and not being charged uh, because they got friends in the right places. It's one of the, the terrible sagas that we see all the time in the movies, we've read in great American novels, and they're seeing it played out in Washington, D.C., and it, it just really ticks people off. You know, I think one of the biggest things that we need in this country right now is more and more people 
either in a position like uh, Attorney General Barr has put in or some elected position <clears throat> that are people that are imperturbable but have a moral compass inside of them that causes them to say, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, I'm going to be honest about what the situation is. I'm going to follow certain principles. It's my responsibility to do that. That's what I would hope we would get a whole lot more of. And, you know, even though I think I wouldn't quite call Donald Trump imperturbable, he, he cer certainly is implacable, you know, in his, in, in his response to things. I mean, he is going to come back and do something. I have a lot of disagreements with Donald Trump on policy, even though there, I also have a lot of agreements. And, uh, but the thing that I think people admire about him when they do is his willingness to take this thing on and never give up. The only thing sometimes he lacks is, uh, you know, the uh, well, the imperturbability of a of a Bill Barr, but but nonetheless, I think that's what people are looking more for. And by the way, they're going to do it on either side of the aisle because they like the characteristic. Right. We need more people on the right to have that characteristic to be willing to fight. I worked for Dr. James Dobson for a few years, as you know, and one thing he would get really kind of uh, frustrated with his, the uh, the public policy staff when there was some big attack against him and they'd put these reasoned, measured, you know, thoughtful responses to whatever. And he'd say, hold, hold on a minute here. I mean, I want to be reasonable, rational, but you got to understand something. And this was his principle. He said, you have to meet passion with passion. That's the only way that you win these debates. So yeah, be rational, reasonable, have the facts on your side, absolutely do all the foundational stuff that you need to do, but take the freaking thing on and focus on it. And we need a whole lot more of that. And that's why I have the, as you know, we've talked about this a lot because we've been friends for a long time, but uh, this is why I'm calling it against nice. I mean, I want to get people oriented to the fact that you have to take these things on smartly, yeah. reasonably, passionately and and people admire people that are solid in their principles but are willing to take uh, their opponents on and that's that is a key thing that needs to change at, at any level whether you're just a, a average voter you know and how you respond in the voting booth or whether you're running for office or whether you're a public figure or whatever it is we need more and more of that i agree it brings it brings uh, uh clarity uh, it brings moral clarity, um, and, and it presents options and choices to people. I mean, I, I just find it interesting that I have friends that are on the political left, uh, and it's very easy for me to have conversations with them uh, that are very honest and truthful and frank. It's a lot easier to have those conversations with them than it is with somebody who's kind of in the middle, who's, who's kind of mushy. They don't necessarily have fully formed views, but also they don't really want to be as honest. Um, they're just looking to either avoid conflict or they're looking to uh, avoid having to take a position. So I think you're exactly right. We need to be kind and respectful. I like to think that, 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 that I do that. When we do research, when we do exposés on the Biden family, we don't go into you know, personal issues related to family members that, 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 you know, that, are, that are problems within the family. We focus on follow the money, but we're very... We're very focused on that, and we're very, very clear on that, and we're very detailed on that. 
and sometimes people say, oh, you're personalizing this. And we're saying, no, we're not personalizing it, but you have to, you have to be honest. And let's have an honest conversation about the Biden family's ties to China. And some people may say, I don't care. Well, that's fine, but at least let's know what the relationship is and have a conversation as to why it matters. And I think that will actually help um, uh, in the United States with the division we're feeling. So I agree with you. Um, let's not focus on being nice. Let's focus being on, uh, let's focus on being kind uh, and truthful. Um, and, you know, in the Bible, we're called to, uh, uh, you know, speak truth in love. Um, and, and the love part is actually kind of easy. You can, you know, it's the truth part uh, that we can wrestle with. But, but it's both. It's not just the love part. It's truth and love. Well, in fact, we totally misdefine love because love has at its core uh, a sense of justice. So, yeah. and justice doesn't always feel nice. Love is not always nice. But I talk about this on my website, politicsisntnice.com. Uh, you know, I quote Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I mean, th having this attitude is really, really important. And uh, I, I, I've sent people that have worked for me, people that I advise ever, I send them to the book of Proverbs. I don't, and I tell them, I don't care if you believe in God or not. You just need that wisdom. This kind of wisdom and understanding is really critical and lacking in our culture, partly because of our education system, many things that, you know, we don't have time to go through here, but these, these uh, attitudes, these ideas need to be re-inculcated into our culture because it's a, a big thing that lacks. And anyone who has true wisdom, true wisdom, not the people that say, I'm going by my truth. No, no, no. There's only truth. It's not your truth. And your truth is only as good as how it uh, aligns to truth. But so we got we to gotta get this understanding uh, back into culture and then act upon it with courage and fervor and passion. So, uh, and consistency, it's really, really critical. Uh, before we get closing down, so tell me what you guys are doing at Government Accountability Institute next. Tell people anything they know to get connected to you or whatever. Uh, yeah, you can, uh, you can uh, access our website. Uh, you can go to cronyism.com or g-a-i.org. Uh, we've got our, our reports there, our investigations there. Um, uh, we are doing uh, a number of investigations. Most of them, honestly, are, are confidential, the nature of the work that we do. Um, but we've got um, a report that we've been working on for a while. I can't go into detail, but will be coming out soon. Uh, we're looking at the whole issue of the cannabis industry and um, how uh, legalization has taken place and who's benefiting from it. And what you would find, Jim, you probably won't be surprised, but some of the audience might, uh, that a lot of the people that are getting cannabis licenses in states across the country are family members or close friends of politicians. Um, it's, it's really uh, the legalization process. This is not a, a free market. This is not a merit-based system. It's an insider game that is designed to enrich uh, the political class. Um, and that's something people need to be aware of, regardless of what their position is on, on cannabis legalization. Well, and I have no idea what's behind the research you're doing, but I can tell you just from experience, it's far more democratic, uh, so to speak, in, in a state like Colorado 
than it is like a state like California, where there's Absolutely. no doubt that whole process Absolutely. there was filled with cronyism. And many of yeah. these uh, yeah. states have done the, that very same thing. I think we did it a better way here, but I'll be curious to I see what you that. find out. But I, know, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. So, um, well, you've been a friend for many years. Okay. I'm, I mean, a lot of people don't know this but I just am grateful for your encouragement through the years and you've been so helpful to me in various things. Uh, we got together when I was on the radio in Denver way back in the day. That's how I, just cause I got you in for an interview and you just been a friend ever since you're very incisive, insightful, excuse me, and clear in what you do. Um, I just can't thank you enough for all the work you've done for this country. And certainly I can't thank you enough for your friendship. It's uh, I'm always grateful for uh, our times together and being able to, you know, work on things. And so thank you always I am, for that. I am too. Thank you. Thank you for your friendship and your brotherhood. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you're, uh, you're doing well in Colorado and I look forward to getting together and breaking bread together soon. Yeah. You know, we'll do that. Uh, Peter Schweitzer, thanks for being on my against nice podcast. And, uh, Good luck in all the guys are doing in the future. Thanks for everything you do do. Thanks, brother. Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. And again, before you leave us, I just want to ask you, connect with us on our email list and our social media. Go to politicsisntnice.com. Click on the join our email list button. We'll get you information related to what we learned here today, but also um, other information that we're finding out along the way. It'll be a great resource for you. You can also go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash against nice and our Twitter page at against nice. Go check us out there and we look forward to talking to you, getting your feedback, finding out more from you. Thanks and have a great day.